the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. So Tia, welcome. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, so Tia, by way of introduction, you are currently the Director of IT Data and Information Services for Gallagher. Um, and as I think most people will know, Gallagher are obviously a major insurance uh, risk management consulting company uh, founded in 1927, I believe. So over 100 years old and, and sort of over 49,000 employees worldwide. So clearly a very established and uh, reputable insurance company. Um, but I've really been looking forward to today because I know uh, insurance is a an industry I find it a very fascinating world because I always feel it's a little bit of a dichotomy in many ways insofar as it's an industry kind of steeped in heritage in tradition mm-hmm. um yet in the same breath you know from a tech and data perspective there's a lot of really interesting work mm-hmm. being done um and a lot of kind of real potential I guess to, to transform the industry through tech and data and creating the right kind of data-driven um culture which you and I have spoken about before um, so yeah, I guess it's a bit of a bit of a spectrum, I suppose, isn't it? On one end of the of the spectrum, you've got companies which know they need to be a bit more data driven, but not really done a huge amount with it yet. And then the other end of the spectrum are companies that are, you know, to all intents and purposes, I guess, tech companies just happen to sell insurance. Um, so really interested to sort of understand a bit about your approach and uh, where Gallagher is on that journey. Um, but before we go into that, it'd be lovely to just hear a little bit more about you. Um, so if you'd be so kind, you know, let us know how you got into tech in the first place and uh, yeah, give us a little bit of a walkthrough of your uh, your career journey to date. Yeah, so, um, so as you mentioned, I work at Gallagher now, but uh, it's probably been maybe 20 year journey to kind of get to where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to university and I did aeronautical engineering and at the time that I left, it's just around the time of 9-11, and it wasn't right. really a time when anyone was hiring aeronautical engineers. You know, the travel industry collapsed, no one wanted to go on planes. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I really need to retrain. And so I went off, I did another degree, and then came out, and um, I ended up taking a job in um, for Experian, um, working in their software house. Uh, and I started off in testing. And then after that, I did a variety of different roles across a number of different IT professions. So I started with testing, a little bit of software development and data warehousing. And, you know, at that time, you know, 20 years back, IT wasn't quite as rigid as it is now in terms of this profession, that profession. And about, I'd say, 10, 12 years ago, I ended up in the data warehousing space. And um, I've been there ever since, kind of specializing more into analytics. So when I started at Experian, we did predictive analytics on fraud, and that's where I started. And that's sort of where my career's grown out of um, mm-hmm. since. Um, during that 20-year period, I've done um, some consultancy work. I've done um, work across the public sector, working my way up through the NHS. And I've done telecoms, and now I'm in insurance, which is where I find myself at Gallagher. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much for that. So was there always a, um, a kind of a natural choice for you to, uh, yeah, what was it about technology in the first place that really appealed to you, I guess, as a career? I think I was always interested in, you know, from quite a young age in breaking stuff and then putting it back together. 
um, whether that was physical, you know, engineering parts, or whether that was trying to do things um, digitally, you know, with what primitive technology we had back in the yeah. the nineties. But um, certainly, we were quite early adopters in my household of getting a computer. My parents had no idea what to do with it, um, but I was always trying to figure things out and and have a play. What was the first uh, computer? Do you remember? Oh gosh, I remember that my dad brought one home because they were giving them away from his office. Oh right, well, um, you know, having a bit, of a, clear, a bit of a clear out. No, it's it sounds way like more glamorous than it was. Oh, right. It came and it had it was a green screen job, um, okay. and then he brought one back um, about a couple of months later, and it was even older with an orange screen. Oh wow! And I was like, wow, this is this is and this, you know they they brought home floppy disks and they were like a foot, <laughs> uh, you know a, a foot by a foot. Yeah, uh, they were enormous, and so that was kind of the very beginnings. But you know, if I think back to kind of the school days and you know BBC computers and all that kind of stuff, that was sort of everyone else was off in the library or playing with stuff, and I was sat there trying to get things to work with little robots, and and I think that was where my interests were. Mm. But I, you know, at a young age, you don't necessarily know what a career looks like. You're just exploring and figuring things out, and so mm. I was always. Um, quite interested in that space and then I fell into um, women in STEM programs quite early okay. sort of 16 17 and they gave me more of a path of who considered this and considered that okay and uh, that led me to where I am now and I'm still quite fantastic. active in the women in STEM space and you know, coaching and mentoring that kind of stuff. yeah fantastic I mean it's something I'm really passionate about because obviously in the world of recruitment it's something we especially in tech recruitment we encounter on a daily basis you know this sort of disparity in the um, you know, difference in sort of gender bias within uh, within tech, and obviously as a dad of two daughters myself, it's something I'm really passionate about as well. The uh, the STEM um, sort of associations that you are involved with were they within school? Were they outside of school, or were they, they? They were outside. So I was involved with two. One was, and I, I presume both of them are now defunct because you know STEM has changed quite significantly, and now um, technology is it's a standalone uh, space. But I was involved into women in science and engineering and another one that looked after or called Insight, which looked after um, engineering and specifically physics type stuff. Um, and they did um, all kinds of stuff like uh, university long weekends and, and kind of gave you an experience there mm. where you go do an immersive three or four days at a university, figure out what their engineering teams did, figure out what their computing labs were like, you know, do mini hackathons. It was all kinds of stuff that they would mm. send you off to do. And it was all very interesting, you know, and, and I think um, back then that was quite groundbreaking. Now we yeah. know there's a lot of women in in STEM initiatives, mm. but then that was like a really new thing. So yeah. it was, it was uh, certainly formative. Yeah. <laughs> and have you, have you always, since coming into technology, felt you were kind of wedded to it and ever, ever thought about deviating away from it? Or did you always feel this was home for you and, and kind of where you'd want to continue growing your career yeah i've definitely always thought that this was where my home is i've always considered my career to be quite organic um you know opportunities come up that you can't ever foresee mm. and so when a good one comes up i'm always curious and uh so my career has taken a rather um unusual path compared to some you know i think uh, many people sort of pick a profession and they go up and up and up and up and up each of the ranks ranks i've sort of sidestepped and jigged about but it, mm. in some cases i think it's um it's it's an interesting path to take it's a bit of an rounder and you get yeah. insight into all kinds of different areas and i think that cross-pollination either whether that's between industry or between um it professions mm. is really interesting it yeah. helps you become more of a well-rounded individual yes yeah absolutely okay interesting 
Let, let's talk a little bit about your your role now then. So talk us through um, the process, I guess, in your experience of of how you best implement a data culture. Um, you know, because I appreciate it's not something that can be just come from one person, but obviously as a, as a leader, you know, it's, it's the, the job of that leader is try and uh, ingratiate everybody into that data culture. So how do you go about that? What's your uh, your secret? Yeah, so um, interestingly, I've worked at a number of places where data culture has been a challenge. It's not unusual across any of um, people, any, any area where they're working in data at the moment. Culture is always a challenge. And I think... Yeah. Um, Historically, data has always been considered part of IT. And so yeah. it's very much about landing technology, landing technology products. This application is in, we move on to the next program. And you know, data is a living thing. It has a life cycle and it requires skills. It's not necessarily about technology, it's about what you do with it. And it's about that yeah. enablement piece. Mm-hmm. And um, I had an interesting conversation about two, three years ago where I was told, Tia, we need a data culture. Um, data culture just means sort our processes and then we'll have one. And I was like, it's much, much wider than that. Mm. Uh, uh, so for me, it's about, um, it's about the people, it's about processes, it's about what we do to skin them up. It's about how do we embed um, data into our day-to-day jobs? You know, it's about driving that out, but we need to make that easy. So we've got to make the data accessible, but it's mm. got to be safe, it's got to be secure. Um, but we need to skill people up. It's not a skill that comes naturally to people. You can't just give them access to data and expect that they're going to be able to use it. Mm. That's a skill in itself, both in terms of the manipulation, but also having the wisdom to be able to understand what it's showing you and where you can use data safely and where perhaps the data is not suitable. Yeah. So I was having a, an interesting conference uh, conversation at conference yesterday about the idea of um, confidence levels within data. So some data is needs to be really really perfect you know if you're looking to do i don't know medical research genetic mapping something like that you would want your data quality to be absolutely perfect but in other cases if you're just looking to find out how many widgets have you sold in glasgow yesterday do you really care if it's two out three out Mm. you know you want something that's indicative in that in that space yeah and giving an individual um who's using that data the awareness to understand when they need perfect data quality and being able to differentiate between how good is good enough is all part of that culture stuff. Mm. Making sure your governance is embedded, making sure they know the rules of what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Yeah. Um, and making sure that everyone's safe and um, able to do their jobs effectively with the data. You know, Data platforms aren't just there to get you access. They're there for you to use. You know, Your, your data is only really as good as, as how much you use it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's really interesting to say that. But how how do you go about that journey of you know taking winning hearts and minds, sort of taking people on that journey with you, and, and I guess engaging with stakeholders, especially people that maybe are slightly reticent to it or, or don't necessarily see the immediate value of data. Um, yeah, you know, what, what sort of approaches do you take as a leader to, to try and change that? Yeah, so so you're always starting with what you want your strategy to be. Like ultimately, what are the big pain points that you're trying to address? Mm. And then work backwards from there. And um, if you can take a, a multi-work stream approach, I think that's, that's useful. Not everything can be delivered um, immediately. So you have to figure out, well, actually, off the big programs I've got, alongside of it, I've got to be able to demonstrate some value early now. Yeah. And if you can cherry pick some small, easy deliverables that you can do, 
well, actually, you can start building that culture early in a small little pub, in a Vanguard site or a pilot site, whatever you want to call it. You give it a fancy, snazzy name yeah. um, and drive it out from there. Take a small group of really enthusiastic people, put them in a room together and say, actually, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to drive it out. Is that maybe you're doing it um, uh, process by process, or maybe you're doing it product by product, but start small and begin to bring people in. Um, I'm a big fan of the idea that taking some enthusiastic people to be able to scale an idea is really quite useful. Yeah. Um, you know, enthusiasm is so infectious. Yeah. You know, if you have one person that's been co-opted from your team, mm. go work in data for, you know, half, half a morning, um, a week, for example, mm. and they go back with some fantastic ideas. They show everyone in their team and they're like, well, oh, that sounds really great. Let's go do that. Mm -hmm. And you can then begin to have that permeate quite naturally. Yeah. Um, but in alongside that, you then need some more structured approaches. So what mm. can you do around large-scale training plans? Not just about tools, but around skills for governance, skills for, you know, what are your what are your data policies? What are those what are those bits and pieces that need to be put in place mm. around security? What are the what is the what is your governance structure? Who needs to sign stuff off? Yeah. You know, all those things that people need to know to be able to use the tools safely. Yeah. And that all needs dual training. So tech, but also the business stuff that goes with it. Yeah. Um, and that needs to run alongside, but it needs to be timed effectively so that when you're landing the technology, that learning is still fresh. Yeah. So, you know, we're working at the moment to look at what our um, enablement plans are for a big transformation program that we're doing. And trying to figure out the timings of when to start the training so that it, it, it is completed, ready for the platform. You know, yeah. Trying to dovetail the two of those together. Yeah, cool. There's no point in um, delivering the training if they forget it all by the time the platform True. lands. You know, you mm. forget. If you don't use stuff, you forget half of it within two days. And that's the statistics around this. Right. Um, and within a month, you've forgotten it all. Yeah. So you need to say so the truth, training mate. is, yeah, if you think about, you know, back to the days when you were doing exams or anything like that, mm. you did the initial cram and then you have to go back into your revision a couple yeah. of weeks later and then again and again yeah. until it sinks in. And mm. that's because of these sort of memory degradations. Mm. And um, so when you're looking at you know, embedding that training and making sure that people can remember and use how the, uh, can remember how to use these tools then you need to make sure that it's at the same time the platform's going to land and that they're going to have access to it. Mm. And, you know, even getting the access ready and sorted out, that takes time. You know, that's not yeah. an instant thing. That can mm. take, you know, a couple of weeks of, you know, sat at someone's desk, John's on holiday, you know, he hasn't had time to look at it. It's in his inbox. Mm. Oh, by the time they actually had their access sorted, they've forgotten it. Yeah. So you really have to think about when when those timings come in together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine lots to think about. Obviously, lots of uh, lots of places to spin simultaneously. Um, but just going back to the point you made right at the beginning, that answer. What I really liked and I found really refreshing is as a leader, you know, sort of understanding that it's about doing it through people. You yeah. know, it's, it's sort of almost rather than do as I say because I'm the leader and you know this is how you do it. I totally agree with you. You know, it's getting other people bought in and passionate and, and like you say that does it is very infectious it will permeate throughout uh you know more, more people and, um, and and there are there are more structured ways that you can embed a data culture as well you know it's there, there's there's the, the carrot bit which is all that incentive you know exciting stuff where you're you know bringing people along on the journey but there is also also the sort of stick side of things where mm. you're 
you know, putting in some more rigid stuff. Um, you know, if you wanted to look at, say, driving your data quality, that's a big part of your culture. Mm -hmm. um, you can look to performance manage that and make, you know, put it in people's objectives mm -hmm. and say, actually, I expect you to have good data quality. And you can put some metrics in there and say, you know, at the end of the month, I only want to see you have 2% you know, data quality issues across your piece. Mm -hmm. And performance management against that. I mean, it doesn't have to be um, you know, as, as nasty as performance management can sometimes sound, but it gives them some idea of what your expectations are. Yeah. And you can structure that as well. So it's a little bit of both. You know, you do want some form and shape to what you're trying to deliver in your in your culture through the likes of, you know, those clear objectives. Yeah. But on the other side, you want it to be fun and engaging mm. in something where it doesn't feel burdensome. Yes. Uh, and that is part of the innovation. So you need both together. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. I guess there's obviously lots of um, different methodologies that you could employ. Mm. You know, we all know the likes of Agile and that mm. kind of thing. And I think very often Agile is, is not widely adopted in lots of industries, especially bigger industries where there's huge data initiatives to execute. It's very difficult to, to do that. Um, but wh where would you say um, Gallagher is in, in that sort of state of, of maturity that I kind of mentioned at the earlier um, earlier part of the podcast on, on that sort of spectrum. Where, where would you yes. which you are at the moment? So I think insurers generally, you know, that whole, um, as, as an industry, are perhaps not as far ahead as, say, their banking counterparts. Mm -hmm. When we look at innovation and we look at that maturity um, model, um, I think that if we look at Agile, and it's certainly something we're adopting, so we have a number of um, key ways of working that we're moving to implement across Gallagher, one of which is Agile. There's another one around uh, sort of data ops, using Azure DevOps as, as oh. our sort of tool for that. Yeah. Um, but there are other bits and pieces, you know, TOGAFs and so on and so forth around uh, architecture and bits and pieces. Mm. Um, but, but when I look at um, how they've operated in the past, um, it's been very waterfall. And as we transition into Agile, there's uh, a definite shift in that mindset. So if you take um, a program plan across full funding, for example, in an Agile way, it's a lot more difficult to understand when it's definitely going to end because you haven't fully spec'd out um, all of the requirements you need to build. Yeah. So those time estimates aren't there. You're working yeah. on two-week sprints. Um, and so if you take that forward and someone goes, yeah, but when's the program going to end? That's... Um, that's, that's a mind shift for them mm. um, and something we're working on and, uh, uh, you know, working to embed that and um, get people on additional training and so on and so forth. Um, but there are areas of the business where actually that agile methodology is, is already deeply embedded. So it's, yeah. it's out there in our application development space, but now trying to scale that across the wider technology, which yeah. data will be well, the next one to go through. We've already still started some of that work is... Um, is, is still a bit of an ambition. You know, we're scaling mm. into that, hopefully, uh, this side of summer. You know, that's kind of, okay. we're at the beginning stages of it, just kind of rolling that out. Cool. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a very refreshing and pragmatic answer that, you know, it's not, not one size fits all and, and this is the, you know, the methodology that's deployed across business because, like I say, there's so many, you know, um, different variables to take into account when you're thinking about anything like that, especially when it comes to transformation, I guess, and taking something from A to B. Um, you know, so yeah, I can, I can totally understand that. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit more about you as a, as a leader. And um, I always ask this question because I think it's quite insightful to the individual, but w what, what does being a leader mean to you? And what do you feel are some of the kind of most valuable traits um, that you, you can possess as a leader? 
Yeah, I think in the in the data space, historically people have again always thought around technology skills. When they think about their career planning, they're thinking about well, I've got to learn Azure, or I've got to learn about Snowflake, or I've got to learn about you know whatever else it happens to mm. be, whether it's alter it, that or it's you know it's yeah. it's ClickView or whatever it happens yeah. to be that week DBT. Um, uh, and in reality, the skills that you needed for the last job are never the skills you need for the next job. Mm. And um, as I look at what the workload that I undertake now is compared to, say, two jobs ago um, or three jobs ago, however far back we want to go, um, my role now is 90% around communication and doing mm basically internal sales and negotiations and that kind of stuff and selling the vision. And um, probably about 10% of the other stuff is, um, you know, kind of managing budgets and, uh, you know, the staff piece yeah. and that, that mm. kind of stuff. There is, you know, a big a big amount of strategy on that. Yeah. that but, but a lot of that, you know, deep thinking around, like, what is the nitty gritty? How do we how do we hook this all together? That's largely done by people who are sort of further down in the team, our architects, and, and we were doing more technical roles. Yeah. But actually, at this level, I think um, I spend more of my time going out and engaging with the business, making sure we're aligned, we're answering the questions that they, they want answered, yeah. um, you know, making sure that what we're delivering gives them value beyond just here's another tool. Um, it needs to be something that actually answers the right questions in a yeah. way that they want answered. And, mm. um, you know, as a leader, it's about, you know, leading the charge a little bit. You know, this is mm. the vision. And sometimes the business doesn't know what they don't know. Um, so you have to come up with ideas and go, these are the options. Which one do you like? Or yeah. Maybe it's some recommendations from you going, well, mm. this is the best option. This is the, you know, the three bears, Goldilocks scenario. Um, and, I think that's called the alternative uh, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and sort of acting with a little bit of thought leadership there around where they should be going or perhaps where the competitors are heading. Yeah. Sometimes that's a good place to benchmark. Mm. Um, but also there's definitely a, an amount of kind of internal pastoral care that you need to give to your team around mm. the coaching, around the mentoring, around showing them what actually what good look like, looks like and helping them kind of move forward a little bit yeah, uh, yeah. and doing that piece as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I totally agree with you there from the um, some of the softer skills point of view and the role of it. I mean, I've seen the role of a, a CTO, CDO in my 15 years doing the job really evolve, really change, you know, whereas it used to be historically maybe the strongest person technically, yeah. you know, that could had a little bit of, you know, um, managerial and, and sort of uh, softer skills, whereas now, I see, you know, since the world is, everything's evolved more digitally, technology and data is becoming the beating heart of, of yeah. lots of businesses and driving businesses forward. And I think now more than ever, I see that the most successful, you know, leaders, data leaders and, and uh, CTOs as people that have exceptional soft skills, you know, really good at sort of, um, like I say, that, that sort of sales piece really and yeah. sort of highlighting to, to people why we should be going on this journey and making the board sort of understand that and and and, and what are the ramifications if we don't do this as well like and, I said. and i think i think the bit that's quite often overlooked is the amount of alignment that needs to happen with the business so if i think about the 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 end-to-end data strategy um you know we've been through the point where we've gone from paper and we've moved to digital and we've gone we've done a digital transformation and then people kind of went you know across the entire of industry of everywhere. 
I've gone, well, what did a digital strategy give us? Well, it didn't quite give us what we wanted. We yeah. probably need to think about a data strategy and yeah. how we use data, where we need data, how we move it around the system. And then there's the, the obviously the other bit around analytics and dashboarding and all that kind of other stuff. But there is the piece around end-to-end. What, do we, what data do we need and where do we want to put it? Yeah. Um, and to be able to do that, you need to understand the entirety of the business and all of the business processes because otherwise, you won't know which bits of data you want to collect. Yeah. And that is foundational to any business strategy. Yeah. And um, that part, I think, is often forgotten that actually the IT department are, and, the, and uh, in association with that data are often one of the few places across the entire business that know everything. They know all of your systems. They know all of your data. They need to understand all of your processes mm. in a way that if you went to one particular team, they wouldn't necessarily know what happens in finance or in HR. Yeah. They would know what happened in their bubble. Mm. Um, whereas in the data team, you're expected to know yeah. everything. So yeah. it's a good place to, to kind of look to partner. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I can I can understand that absolutely. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier on about, um, you know, sort of pegging yourself against competitors in the marketplace and, and obviously Gallagher, you know, hugely um, reputable business, been around for over 100 years. Um, obviously, you know, that, that many people in the company now. But do you um, do you kind of peg yourself against any particular competitors in in sort of insurance landscape? Are there any kind of companies out there that you're sort of looking at thinking there's similarity or synergy or actually, yeah, we can sort of maybe adopt a certain approach in the way they're doing it? Yeah, so um, certainly we're always mindful. So Gallagher is super ambitious in terms of where it sits in that sort of top rankings of insurers, yeah. both in terms of course of quality of service, but also size. Yeah. You know, um, I think we're now joint joint second or third largest um, insurance brokerage in the world. Yeah. And, vast, uh, and there's been a huge amount of growth to get us there over the last few years. It's come inorganically, mostly through M&A, but there's also been large growth in actually our customer base. Yeah. Um, and, um, we are always kind of looking around, going, what is everyone else doing? Um, you want to be in front of them. You know, we like to be a leading edge company. And um, that's part of the big transformation we're doing is to make sure that we are in that space. Mm. Um, and, you know, insurance is a, is a small bubble. Like people move from one insurer to the other. So we do know roughly what's, mm. what's kind of going on in those other spaces from a, from a data and technology perspective. Mm. Um, and actually, with it, even within insurance, there are small kind of, uh, I suppose, networking groups that happen across the CTOs or CDOs. And, mm. you know, whilst we're not in a position to share each other's company secrets, we get a general feel of, of what's happening in that space. And yeah. um, we're all quite often working on the same big programs to make sure we're making industry standards. So mm. in that way, we come together. Yeah. So um, we are always thinking about what is what are our competitors doing? Because we don't want to stay in a stagnant position yeah. to keep advancing. Yeah, absolutely. Very insightful. I mean, you, you strike me as somebody that's uh, in, in a... A very digital world that we're all living in, sort of post-pandemic, and everything's kind of uh, you know done over Zoom and Teams. Very often, you strike me as somebody that really goes the extra mile to to go out there and actually you know attend events and conferences and and sort of do that face-to-face interaction yeah. piece alongside others. So, how important is that to you, and, and what sort of value do you get from I, that? I think it, I think it is really important. I think it's important um, to be able to meet peers who you know are ultimately facing the same kind of challenges. Yeah. Data is um, the same regardless of what industry you're working in. You know, you're still using the same tools. Counting is still counting. 
um, you still come up with the same challenges. Yes, there are industry nuances, but being able to meet with peers and kind of get their learning and share mm. some of that knowledge is really important. But I think there are other benefits to it. One is around getting the message out. Like, what are your What is your company doing? Yeah. And I think um, you know, in you work in recruitment, uh, certainly the part that I find um, useful out of it is that it's so difficult to land good individuals in the data space. They're so few and far between. There are ten times more jobs than there are candidates, and so having your message out in the public space begins to attract people into your company. And um, before I started doing a lot of the external networking and doing the conferences and sort of posting and having that, you know, that sort of public brand, I guess. Yeah. Um, no one would ever message me and say, I want to come work for you. Mm. But now I have a constant stream of people who, you know, hit you up on LinkedIn. Yeah. Mm. How do I, do you have any jobs at the moment? I'd be mm. interested in coming to work for you. Or can I have half an hour of your time? Yeah. Um, I'd like to know if you've got any posts coming up. And some mm. of those are recruiters, as you'd expect. But some of them are actually individuals, yeah. you know, direct, direct contacts. Yeah. And I think from that perspective, it's been really good to, to kind of get that message out there. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. I think, you know, the, the world is is massively evolving, massively changing. And recruitment, I think, as a result of that, is also massively evolving and changing. And, and I say it's my job now. Of course, yes, we we will make money by placing candidates into roles. But I see for us to really partner with our clients you know, and, and sort of um, add fundamental value into what they're doing, a lot of the conversations we're having with them at the moment is actually around that, exactly what you said, that brand propositioning piece. And it's, it's you know, I'm not speaking out of term, but you'd be amazed how many sort of quite senior people just don't, don't get that bit about actually how it really makes a big difference in terms of talent attraction and talent acquisition to kind of just be out there, you know, and building up that brand, you know, both as a personal brand for you as a leader. Because like you say, people buy from people in the day. And by virtue of you working at Gallagher, Gallagher will benefit from the fact you've built up a personal brand as well. So it's, <clears throat> and if you get it right, a really, um, you know, valuable kind of symbiotic relationship between the individual and the company um, to, to get out there and and ultimately I'm, I'm, I'm a big people person obviously thankfully working in recruitment this is the right industry for me but um, I just think you, you don't really fully get the, the, the true experience doing everything digitally uh, no matter what you're doing and I think you know everything in business ultimately boils down to people yeah it, um, it's all down to people and connections and kind of that network particularly as you want to advance your career yeah. the bigger your network is yeah, the absolutely. easier that's going to be and certainly you know since starting a lot of that conference circuit and doing all of that kind of stuff. And I've done it for years, but not necessarily spoken about it publicly. Yeah. But I think we're now, you know, we're in a very um, socially, social media savvy driven world where everyone has to have something out in the public space so you don't exist. Mm. And it's now sort of an expectation that yeah. as, a, as a technology leader, you have a platform and you use yeah. it and, and, and that is out there. Mm. But um, certainly beginning to be more open about it has led to a huge amount of other opportunities in the non-exec space and the advisory space. I do parliamentary work now and it's Fantastic. all kind of exploded quite yeah. quickly Yeah, um, in a way that I, I would never really have thought that just posting a couple of you know, conference updates on social media might do that. But mm. it, it, it really does make a massive difference. And I've, yeah. I've kind of, for the people that I mentor, they're like, yeah, I don't really want to do it. And I said, you know, it will be, you know, it will it will make mm. a massive change to yeah. to 
to your career. Mm. And I, I read a statistic quite recently that only if you if you post once a week, you're already in the top one percent of people on LinkedIn. You're already yeah. like an influential yeah. voice. Yeah. It's really easy to do because yeah. most people aren't doing it. They put their CV on there and then they leave it. Um, but if you want to be seen as as someone who has an opinion, who's influential in that industry, yeah, just post once a week. Totally, it's, it's sim- simple, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, clearly you're a very credible and you know um, uh, yeah. inspirational individual. So I'm not surprised you're getting a lot of attention and, and uh, attracting a lot of inquiries. But in the same breath, yeah, you're right. It's just so many people, by virtue of the fact that so many people don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you just did do it, you know, you would uh, reap, the, reap the benefits. I of think black it's black. a very British thing. You know, like yeah. we don't like to put sing our own phrases. And, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I don't put yourself out there, but um, yeah. I, I think I think just nationally we would work out. All that, you know. Bit shy, and I don't, I don't quite fancy doing it, you know. And quite humble, most people, yeah. uh, I think, are by by nature. And so, um, yeah, it's it, it feels strange the first few times you do it, but you yeah. can kind of get into a rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Interesting. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of uh, trends in the market, I guess, from a technical perspective. And sort of going back to what I we was saying earlier about insurance being quite a traditional industry, um, and you know where we are today, especially in the data world, I guess, with the, 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 the sort of gargantuan leaps forward that we've taken over the last couple of years with the rise of LLMs and, and Gen AI and that, that kind of thing. Um, but what is it that you personally are most excited about, I guess, in the world of data? today you know um what sort of uh excites you yeah so so if i think about the entirety of my career in data when we first started tools were very um were incredibly expensive and the the breadth of what you could do with them was relatively limited um and that meant that your ambitions had to be quite limited as well Mm. and i think now that you know everyone's across the entire industry, not just insurance, has decided, um, cloud first, that sounds like a good idea. And um, APIs are so commonly available, like standard APIs where you're just kind of out of the box. Um, and uh, so many of our tools are now cloud native that they all play together in a very nice, easy to use way. Yeah. Um, that actually being able to plug some of that data stuff together is really, really easy. Yeah. You know? Stand up the tech stack is now much simpler than it would have been back then. And actually how you can get the data in is much easier. That's a great start. But then when I look at um, some of the advances um, within those tools to actually make data more usable, to make it more accessible around low code, no code, in addition to, you know, the the hardcore engineers or data scientists who might have SQL or R skills or, you know, Python or whatever it happens to be. Um, there's still a space for those, but for those people who do data on the side of their desk, or maybe they work in finance or HR, they're pretty solid data skills, but they're not technologists in that sense. Mm. It now gives us the ability to give them access to the data in a safe way, in a usable way, and begin to sort of scale across a business instead of having a silo data team. And I think that's really... um, quite interesting and exciting yeah but then when i look at you know where we've gotten to um when it comes to the ai and um, intelligent automation and rpa and all the other stuff that fits in that whole automation bucket um you know if i go back to when i started in Experian looking at um, decision analytics and fraud and predictive stuff the the leap forward in the last two years to move us away from you know uh, machine learning into um, 
sort of more generative AI stuff. And you know, the generative AI stuff's been around quite a while, you know. Yeah. It's, but the last 12, 18 months, that step change from yeah. well, GPT-3 came out and now four and it looks like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, that has been a real game changer. Like no one used to come to me and say, I'm interested in learning about AI and they happen to work in, you know, finance or they happen to work in AHR. That was never yeah. a thing. Um, but when your mum comes to you and goes, uh, so AI, I, I, like, I, I had to play on a thing. And yeah. you're like, my mum can barely use a phone. Yeah, and, that was um, the light bulb moment for me, I think. Yeah, that, and it I got think, that I level think, of adoption. When, when your family suddenly understands that, you know, the work that you do because they've heard a buzzword, yeah. then you know that there's been a, a significant shift in the market. Yeah. You know, a significant shift. Um, not just within industry, but outside of industry and people's perception of what data can do for them. Yes. Um, is has been really quite exciting. And I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to the next kind of two, three years and see where that takes us. Mm. Um, there's certainly a question around how much of what generative AI can give us and how much of that is hype. Um, mm. And I think there's probably a certain amount of maturity. So we look at where it is now, like that is a lot of hype. Mm. But actually... Where will it be in two years? Well, actually, that might be very, very different. It's, yeah. That might True. begin to land yeah. some of those big ambitions that people have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even internally within Gallagher, we, we, we've already started tinkering in, in the generative AI space. We've got our own, our own um, internal GPT setup, uh, you know, safe, secure place, you know, internal. Um, and uh, we're beginning to kind of build out some use cases for that where we can apply it and so on. Um, but it's it's definitely a learning curve. You know, there's so few people out in the market who have those um, skills, unless you're willing to pay astronomical amounts of money. Yeah, you know, I'm sure as a recruiter, you're seeing that there's there's people who want to find those mm. those skills, but so few of them that, that are actually out there in the market who have real yeah. experience. Yeah. Lots of people who have said, "Oh, I'm learning it myself." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's very different to someone who goes, "Actually, you know, I I, I came from Google or I came yes, from yeah, you know, somewhere so. where they've actually been using it." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and that's what we're finding. Yeah, to your point, it's about adoption, isn't it? And, yeah. and I guess the maturing of the market, and it, it always yeah. will be. There'll be a you know, recruitment always is a supply demand paradigm of one outstripping the other at various points. But I think as the you know and, and AI is not going anywhere, right? Gen AI, I say, you know, that's what scares me really. You think about technology and, and you know, the internet's been around for like 40 years mm -hmm. and obviously how quickly the world has evolved in that time, but just literally this sort of like flash that's happened in the last sort of 12 months mm -hmm. of like how exponentially, you know, such a massive leap forward. Um, I agree with you. I think in the next couple of years, it'll be amazing to see where we are because yeah. it feels like it is just going to become exponential now. And, yeah, and I, think, I think you're right, you know, kind of the... You, using the internet as an example. I mean, I'm old enough to remember a time before the internet, like the time <laughs> before you could go and it was, you know, that you you would you would have AOL and it was Dancing Cats and that, that <laughs> felt like innovation back then. Yeah, you know, yeah, you'd go yeah. to a page and, and that was it. It was just a picture with Dancing Cats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and if you think about how quickly that moved on to suddenly e-commerce and that now being yeah. able to do streaming and all the rest of it, yeah. that was only 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, and that change was quite rapid. Mm. You know, moving away from there just being like you had AOL and that was it yeah. to to where we are now. Um, I think I think the AI space will will change massively in that sort of five year to make it quite quite a well known thing that was widely mm. adopted. Yeah, and to then being something that's quite mature in the following you know, yes. five ten years afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to be, a, a, and I think the, the AI ethics side of things is where it's going to become more and more into the fore now because um, 
you know, as the, the, the power is, is ultimately going to become more and more powerful and, you know, but ultimately technology is still there to serve humans, I guess, yeah. at the end of the day. And, and they will always, I think they always will need to be that element of final human interaction at the end, just to sort of make sure it's, um, you know, um, uh, verified findings and obviously the right kind of robust um, result. But that sort of interplay between at what point is human interaction required versus you know where it was historically to where I think we're going to be over the next couple of years, I think it's going to be astounding. And uh, I think it's really going to draw upon um, a different set of skills for people to be successful moving forward because now we've got that sort of base layer of logic and, you know, that, let's say that, that level of adoption globally, everyone has access to this now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really going to, and going back to the point we are making earlier about soft skills, I think really draw in the importance of, you know, creativity, uh, empathy, just actually really being a, you know, a good business person, I think moving forward will be actually more about being a person, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense, yeah. than it will about actually, I, I can solve this problem for you because it's like, well, that can be solved mm-hmm. quite automatically. Um, and I think it almost will go sort of full 360 where we'll, we'll sort of appreciate being people again, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I do wonder about the, the sort of future of data professionals' careers. Because as we go into a world where low code and no code and needing no coding skills is um, more and more prevalent because the tools are getting better and better and better. And if I look at um, sort of uh, generative AI code support tools, things like Code Whisperer and, uh, and Copilot and so on that you can plug into things and actually yeah. write code for you, yeah. how much of that work needs to be super technically skilled? And, yeah. and what, does that, um, what does that data team look like in the future? Um, and I think there is a big question around how do people modernize their skills to make sure they're learning the things that are out in the market. So um, you're already starting to see new roles, brand new roles that never existed 18 months ago. Yeah, um, prompt, engineer. Mark, prompt engineers, things like that. Um, and um, figuring out, well, actually, if I want to future-proof my career, mm. certainly not something people need to worry about today or tomorrow, but, you know, looking five, seven years down the line, where are you going to go if you're a person whose job it, in its entirety is to write SQL or yeah. to, you know, code Python or whatever that happens to be? Yeah. How are you going to keep up with the times? And I think people should be really mindful of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's going to be a very interesting space to uh, to be in, isn't it? I think, but um, well, uh, look, to really enjoy the chat today. I think it's been no, a fantastic no, been a uh, conversation, really insightful, and uh, covered covered quite a bit around around in uh, in one episode. But I like to end each podcast in exactly the same way by asking if you'd be so kind to share your one favourite bit of advice that you've ever received, you know, throughout your uh, career or your personal life. Um, you know, what what might that be for you? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think it happened very, very early on in my career. So when I think about, oh, it was just my second and third job I took as a consultancy. And having come from an engineering background, like an aeronautical engineering background, I understood planes and all the rest of it. And then I'd come out and done an operations manager job, actually, um, okay. before moving into technology. Yeah. And so I was relatively low on tech skills, um, but quite high on managerial skills. Right. So they put us through this um, sort of early career boot camp to learn all of the tools that we were going to be using. And I'll be honest, I struggled a little bit. And everyone else who, who was on this boot camp with me, a bunch of grads, 
Um, they raced through everything and they were like, and I, I did look around and go, I am, this is, this is tough for me. Because mm-hmm. um, I wasn't super technical in comparison. I hadn't had that hands-on experience for several years that they had. Yeah. I come from, from management. Yeah. And uh, I did come out one day and I, I spoke to um, my line manager. And I was like, I'm not sure this is the job for me. And he says, well, why not? And I went, I said, look at these guys. I said, they're racing away and I'm really struggling to get this, you know, little bit of the setup. We were doing some configuration stuff. And I said, I'm really struggling to get my head around it. And he said, why did you think that we hired you? And I went to do like Easter. That's what you think when you're early in your career. You don't realize there's, you know, a variety of different skills that you bring to the table. And you think of it very linearly. Mm-hmm. And I said, so he was like, no, that's not why we hired you. We hired you because... You had skills that other people didn't. Like t- learning, teaching people about tools, something we can do very quickly. Teaching people soft skills, communication skills, present how to you know work with someone like this. You know, have it have a natural conversation and figure out what they want. He said that's the gap that we're really struggling to find in the market. Interesting. If anyone can take, um, you know, there's there's so many different. Um, career lines within technology. Maybe you want a business analyst. Maybe you want to be um, a software developer. Maybe you want to work on IT help desk. There's so many different roles within that, and they all require slightly different skills, but all of them require people's skills. Yeah. And um, the best advice I had very early on in my career was people skills, soft skills are more important than anything else that you learn because the technology skills will drop away as you advance up the tree, yeah. you need to learn finance. You need to learn, you know, all the other bits and pieces that go into managing stuff. So, yeah. you know, if you're thinking about, um, you know, wh- where you're going to take your career in ten years' time, you're probably not going to be sat behind a computer coding, unless you want to be super technical. Yeah. Um, you know, those those soft skills are really where you're going to be leaning on quite heavily. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. I think it really sort of reinforces the. The, the thread running throughout the whole of this podcast, really, and, and, and that piece around uh, people skills and soft skills becoming more and more important, mm-hmm. you know, I think as time goes on. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. Well, let's hear it. thank you again no, for coming in. Really, me. really enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to keeping uh, yeah abreast of your um, your developments at um, Gallagher, and uh, wish you all the very best for now and beyond. No, thank you very much. <laughs>